Welcome to Persuasion in the Public Mind. I'm Mark Bourdain. Ever wonder what happens inside your brain on a physiological level when you're exposed to media messages? Today's program is devoted to what neuroscience research can tell us about the mechanics of brain activity and behavior change. To provide some answers, I'm going to spend some time talking with Christoph Morin. Christoph teaches in the Media Psychology program at Fielding Graduate University. He's the CEO of SalesBrain Neuromarketing Agency and the author of the neuromarketing book, The Persuasion Code. So Christoph, for those of us who are unfamiliar with behavioral neuroscience, it might be good to start out with an overview of some of the research conducted and techniques used to measure behavior change. Okay. Um, so I've been researching the effect of media and specifically of persuasive uh, messages on the brain for about two decades. And as a consumer researcher, my passion has always been to decode uh, what is effectively the effect of a narrative, of a story, uh, on behavior. Mm -hmm. And that field for the longest time was uh, driven by traditional methods for collecting information from surveys, from dialogues, from from basically uh, consciousness. In other words, asking people, you know, what works on you to change your behavior? Uh, what makes you feel a certain way? What motivates you? What makes you, you know, make decisions, change your behavior? All those questions have uh, been the basis of how we understand behavioral change until uh, neuroscience became uh, another door through which we are now able to no longer rely so heavily on what's called self-reported techniques, basically conscious uh, techniques, but rather look at ways to uh, produce measures, metrics that come from brain activity. Mm -hmm. So I made that step and that move, which was in my field of consumer research, uh, rather radical and a lot of people rightly so uh, were suspicious if not uh, to some extent even concerned mm -hmm. about the use of clinical you know, methods to investigate uh, the effect of any form of content really uh, including persuasion specifically so uh, since you're interested in the methods I, I can tell you briefly what methods I have used personally mm -hmm. uh, I do have a lab uh, as a matter of fact that I can travel with which helps me investigate uh, you know for clients the effect of a particular message uh, so um, there, there are really two types of activities that happen in the brain that are uh, essential to um, to monitor and so I'll I'll make reference here to a model of persuasion or a model of understanding brain functioning that you may already be familiar with, uh, which is called the dual processing model. Uh, Mr. Daniel Kahneman, uh, a famous uh, psychologist who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, popularized this uh, model under the term of System 1 and System 2. Are you familiar with this model? Actually, no, I'm not. No, no. So, you know, the brain is obviously a very complex 
organ to uh, explain and, and understand. But in terms of processing information and, and how we uh, uh, trigger decisions and choices, this model uh, established that there are essentially two functional areas in the brain that, that have rather uh, different, if not uh, conflicting, objectives. So the first system, which is generally described as system one, we call it in my new book, uh, the primal brain, is, as the name would suggest, rather uh, old and primitive in the sense that it's mostly uh, enabling our ability to survive and guide uh, lots of decisions uh, below our level of consciousness. So our entire autonomic nervous system is controlled by the primal brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, anatomically, think of it as uh, all the brain structures that are below the cortex, below that wrinkly, pinky part of the brain, which is uh, known as the highest and most evolved part of the brain. So the primal brain has short-term priorities, primarily works uh, under the radar, so to speak. Uh, The second uh, system is called system two, uh, as the name would, uh, or the number would suggest, it's the second brain that evolved after system one, is much more uh, sophisticated. This is where we have the capacity, of course, to master language, uh, whether it's uh, our capacity to articulate uh, you know, a thought like I am now or read, uh, but also uh, do uh, mathematical uh, equations, uh, create um, predictions, which of course we do mainly in the frontal lobes, which the frontal lobes are known to be uh, hosting, if you will, the highest form of of cognition. Mm -hmm. And so the second part of our brain is more sophisticated, more able to assess and analyze decisions in a rather more comprehensive way. And what was the conclusion of Mr. Kenman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, in 2007, for which, by the way, he got the Nobel Prize in Economics, is uh, uh, that while we do have access to this very sophisticated system too, which we call the rational brain, uh, the evidence coming from uh, research and especially uh, research conducted by scientific uh, uh, methods is that we are still largely under the dominance of system one or the primal brain. Another way of saying that is we continue to operate and make a lot of decisions uh, uh, below the level of consciousness, and, and therefore we have to take that into account anytime you're on a mission to, you know, to change behavior. So because of this theoretical framework, because of the dynamic nature between system one and system two, we're using a method to measure the activity in the primal brain and in the rational brain. So in the primal brain, we use, for instance, a, a, a method which has been used clinically for a long time uh, to monitor the skin conductivity. It's called galvanic skin response. Have you heard of GSR? I have, before? yeah. Yeah, right. I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with GSR, you're effectively, by simply putting a couple of electrodes on people's fingers, you're uh, uh, allowing the device, the sensor, to measure arousal, to measure. Uh, uh, millisecond uh, 
changes in the conductivity of the skin, basically the, the, the moisture of the skin, which is a direct response produced by our autonomic nervous system, of which we're not conscious. Of course, we are conscious of sweating when we work out, but we're not conscious that we are effectively sweating when we watch a movie or a commercial. Mm-hmm. So we can do that and measure uh, the, raw, the raw excitement, if you will, in the primal brain using GSR devices. Now, would this be... Another uh, technology... Would, would this yeah, be uh, uh, anything uh, equivalent to what's called... Uh, electrophysiological recording? Yeah, it would be typically put in that same uh, category okay. of neurophysiological or biometric recordings okay. that come from the skin, that come from also the heart. So we have devices that measure, of course, heart rate and especially what's called heart rate variability. We measure breathing patterns because uh, anytime we uh, modify our breathing, it could signal uh, either stress or calm or concentration. So all these factors that are very um, uh, basic, if you will, are all signals from the primal brain activity. So that's, that's really our way of tapping into uh, objective measurements that come from these sensors. Mm-hmm. But because we are sophisticated beings and because we have this evolved brain called the cortex, we are using additional devices to measure the activity in the cortex and one that has been used clinically for decades called an electroencephalogram, an EEG, mm-hmm. which I suspect you've heard yes. uh, of EEG. Sure. And the good news is we are able to use a, a very simple EEG with uh, nine electrodes that apply you know, with a little bit of a gel on the surface of the head. And with those electrodes, we're literally listening to how much cognition is going on in the brain, how much thinking is going on in the brain, how much distraction is going on in the brain, Mm -hmm. uh, how much effort people are exerting. For instance, uh, are they really working hard to understand a narrative or does it seem to be uh, cognitively fluent? So we measure what's called cognitive load or cognitive effort. Okay. And we can also measure, which has been very, very powerful for, for prediction purposes, particularly in terms of predicting a behavior, we can measure frontal lobe dominance. Have you heard of the concept of frontal lobe dominance? I have, yes. Okay. And so you may know now that uh, in any given instance, uh, we uh, are typically experiencing dominance of either the right or the left frontal lobe, and we can measure through an electroencephalogram, we can measure that dominance uh, 300 times per second. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, that speed uh, is far, far exceeds the speed of our consciousness. So based on what people are seeing or experiencing, if it's a movie or commercial or, or, you know, a, a formal presentation, we can verify to some extent, we can sync which arguments have the, the, the most um, effect on, uh, on, on which frontal lobe. If the right frontal lobe is showing more activity, if it's higher than the left, that means people are in a state of withdrawal or avoidance. So le- right frontal lobe dominance is, is basically 
deemed negative for the effect of a message, whereas the uh, left frontal lobe dominance is exactly the opposite. So anytime we can measure and identify left uh, signals that are stronger, then that's a positive prediction towards behavior. So these are the devices, and, and I can go in greater length or detail, but as you can see, these are sensors that are not invasive. We're not uh, um, conducting any research that would make people you know, uncomfortable, uh, and, and therefore they can just uh, it, you know, be in front of a, of a desktop or mobile device ensure or not the message that we want to test and we can uh, we can collect uh, all this data to to establish a, a form of prediction on the effect of the message on the behavior well that uh, equipment that you're describing certainly would um uh, be more easy to use on on people uh in a variety of environments but uh where does uh <clears throat> the fMRI uh, equipment come into play here? Yeah, so fMRI are um, popular academically, uh, obviously for, um, for a number of reasons. With, with a functional MRI, you can, in effect, measure activity in both the primal and the rational brains because fMRI are not limited in terms of the, the depth it's called the, the the spatial resolution, the special resolution of an fMRI, which is basically where I can go to measure activity in the brain, is unlimited. You just need to, you know, control the the scanner, so to speak. Um, with fMRI, you're basically looking at blood flow, and blood flow. Think of our blood in our brain as the energy that our neurons need to fire. And so neurons, wherever they may be, uh, cannot operate without recruiting glucose and oxygen. Mm -hmm. And with a functional MRI, the, the benefit of that technology is you can essentially uh, create imagery of where the blood is going and for how long. Mm -hmm. And the blood in that case, uh, and this may be too technical, but the blood is used as a proxy of neuronal activity. In other words, we're not measuring the activity of neurons directly, we're using uh, another metric to, to uh, estimate it. And the power of fMRI is that it is quite powerful to uh, look at specific areas. For instance, if you want to do an investigation of frontal lobe activity with the fMRI, you can specifically locate if the frontal lobe is going to the, you know, to the right, uh, if the blood is going to the frontal lobe. If you're interested in um, whether or not a message has uh, the ability to scare or, or you know, alert people, uh, an area of interest which I suspect you've heard of because it's quite popularized through a lot of articles, the amygdala. Uh, we have two amygdala. The amygdala is known to uh, light up in situations where we are paying more attention and typically uh, it can be negative. It's often negative, but it calls and can also light up if you're having uh, a, a very joyful experience. So you can zoom on specific areas, which has made the fMRI quite uh, popular for that. I also uh, wanted to ask you how neurochemicals like dopamine or serotonin fit into the big picture of behavior change. Yeah, so um, any anytime we, we do experimentation using um, these sensors, we're never um, 
you know, uh, able to measure specifically the amount of neurotransmitters or neurochemicals that are being um, metabolized in different parts of the brain. So there are other methods. For instance, you may have heard of uh, PET scanners, Mm -hmm. and PET scanners require, however, um, injection of tracers in people's bloodstream. So Mm -hmm. obviously when you do studies on persuasion, uh, to be able to do that is is just um, fairly remote. Um, Neurotransmitters are, are crucial. Why? Because... Um, uh, they they either excite or inhibit certain patterns of firing in the brain. So you you mentioned dopamine. There are dopamine neurons everywhere in in the brain, but the production, the most production of dopamine is in the primal brain. And therefore, anytime we have a specific uh, uh, response of uh, either fear or excitement, the primal brain, the biggest factory of dopamine, if you will, is is a is a very primal factory, but dopamine um, moves upwards. It moves from the primal to multiple areas in the brain. For instance, in the frontal lobe, okay, uh, to guide an experience of motivation or learning or excitement. So the reason we hear so much about dopamine is because it's it's known as a reward chemical. So it is. Um, it is clear that our entire chemistry is about either rewarding or preventing us to uh, experience certain states, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and when we are on a mission to try something new, for instance, and we expect that experience to be you know, positive, then that will tend to release more dopamine in our brain. Now, we also know that dopamine can get us into all kinds of uh, terrible uh, addictions, uh, whether it's addiction to substance or whether it's addiction to our cell phones or, um, you know, pornography. So there are all kinds of behaviors, unfortunately, that tend to um, uh, happen or be rewarded chemically because of the dysfunctional nature of, of dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, the, the, the whole idea of understanding persuasion and the relationship between persuasion and behavior uh, has to integrate an understanding of what neurotransmitters are, but more globally to understand the effect of emotions, the effect of affect is mm-hmm. crucial. And in, in my book, I put a pretty big section on the nature of our emotion, what they are, and biologically what they do. Uh, and what relationship they have uh, with behavior and decisions. And through neuroscience, we now have better, a better understanding of the, the nature of emotions as chemicals. Basically, emotions are triggered and, and, uh, and, and, and help us uh, to make all kinds of decisions uh, below our level of consciousness. And, and the, the, the chemicals, you know, such as dopamine, but also um, neuroepinephrine or serotonin, all those chemicals have a specific function that is going to modify emotionally um, the guidance of our decisions. Okay, yeah. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Now, uh, when uh, humans are presented with uh, media messages, uh, there are a number of variables involved uh, concerning the interpretation and decision-making about those messages. Things like uh, 
age, gender, cultural background, uh, and personal involvement with the message being presented are, are all factors, uh, as well as you know many others. Um, with that in mind, uh, what can research tell us about the decision-making process given all of those variables? So the, the, the research that I can uh, talk about is the one that I have done, and, and that um, uh, question around the effect of gender specifically or even age is one that I think is also easier to understand because of, of neuroscience. For instance, let's talk about age. We know that brain maturation is much slower and takes far longer than we ever believed. Uh, for instance, the, the last part really of the brain to mature, and when I say mature, I'm speaking about the connections between neurons, which are called synaptic connections, which really is the basis of our wiring in the brain. Well, those connections um, are finishing in the frontal lobe in the last stage of our neurodevelopment uh, by age 25, 26, which means that um, uh, anybody that is below the age of 25 is still in construction, if you will, in the frontal lobe. And if you know how important frontal lobes are for making predictions, for, um, for in fact, using, uh, we call it the brakes of our impulsivity, um, it, it can explain a lot about behaviors of of people of young of young people, particularly teenagers, because they just don't have the same software than adults do, mm -hmm. and therefore, in terms of how they make decisions and how they act, there are patterns of of, of decisions and and actions that can be quite largely explained by the immaturity of frontal lobes. For instance, you know, um, seventy five percent of teenagers text and drive mm -hmm. uh, while they. Um, are smart and, and will tell you pretty quickly that they believe uh, texting and driving is dangerous, they still do it. Why is, why is this paradox so troubling? Uh, I believe it's because their frontal lobes do not give them the capacity to believe that they will die, mm. that, that they will have you know, consequences and severe consequences from, from this behavior. They believe this is going to happen to other people but not them. Got it. Right. And that failure of making, you know, the right calculation of the consequences of your behavior is really a function of, of weak, if not immature frontal lobes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, gender is another, uh, obviously, you know, concern, or at least a consideration, particularly when you talk about persuasion. Um, if the message content is not gender-specific, obviously, um, then, I, in my own research, I haven't found um, a lot of critical differences, uh, particularly because the, the mechanics of how persuasion works, and even most of our decisions work, is really from the bottom up. In other words, from the, the responsibility and, and the control that the primal brain can uh, exert, uh, that, that primal brain from one gender to another is basically the same. Uh, from one country to another is basically the same. The, the part in our brain that is highly, if you will, uh, customized is, is really the rational brain. 
In other words, uh, depending on where you're born, you're going to you know, master a different uh, language. Uh, depending on your family environment, you may have different uh, political, religious beliefs, right? So the, the, the upper part of our brain, I like, I like to compare it to um, a suite of software that we can, we can highly customize, you know, uh, like uh, you know, Word and Excel and PowerPoint. I mean, you can do you know, all kinds of things that will be very different from one individual to the other. But the part that is underneath the cortex, uh, think of it as BIOS, you know, that part of the software that is basically ruling the way data is organized in your computer mm-hmm. and, yeah. and how, you know, how information is coded. Well, it's basically the same in every computer around the world. So, so there's hardly anything we, we can control in the way uh, our computer data is coded. And that's really very much what's going on with the primal brain. Mm-hmm. The primal brain is pretty much the same anywhere on this planet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> from a neuropsychology or neuroscience point of view, um, are there certain types of media presentations that are more effective in persuading us to buy a certain product or service or in altering our behavior or beliefs? Yes, I believe there are um, known now ways to optimize the persuasive effect, and that's uh, the focus of our of our new book, The Persuasion Code, yeah. where we reveal six specific qualities of messages that are highly persuasive. And when I go through this very quickly, I, I think intuitively you'll you'll see you know that they make sense. But what's fascinating is we have conducted research and testing, confirming that this is effectively what's going on. For instance, um, we're extremely selfish and, and extremely self-centered. Therefore, messages that appeal to that self-centeredness uh, are going to be more persuasive. Mm-hmm. We uh, we aspire to make very quick and and accelerated decisions. And so when you are giving people choices for the purpose of either persuasion or behavioral change, you, you are better off just giving two choices. One that is obviously not a good one. Either it's if you don't do anything, that's what's going to happen. And two, and if you do this, that's what's going to happen. So the simplification of a decision is crucial. And many messages are unfortunately too complex. Many messages are unfortunately uh, 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 hoping or assuming that we are excited to apply all the analytical time or qualities that we have in our, you know, higher uh, cortex, mm-hmm. yeah. we we do aspire to reduce cognitive effort. And I told you we can measure cognitive effort, and that has nothing to do with our level of intelligence or mm-hmm. skills. Uh, I have clients, you know, like G Healthcare and others that sell very very complicated devices. And, and they have learned with me that even if you're pitching, you know, uh, uh, a $3 million piece of equipment to neurosurgeons or people with PhDs in nuclear imaging, you still benefit from making it simple and digestible because cognitive effort is costly in our brain. Mm-hmm. We value uh, that blood, you know, that glucose and oxygen. Um, the fourth principle is is understanding that a persuasive moment has uh, highlights where our brain is, is going to be more attentive and, and will have less 
um, difficulty remembering, and it happens to be at the beginning of the event and at the end of the event. Uh, if think in terms of your own experience of, of a movie or a book, you know, the beginning and the end are critical uh, moments where we tend to remember more and we tend to be more in, in, in a position to be influenced. And so a lot of our um, uh, best messages, if you will, have, have a very strong beginning and a very strong end, and they do not expect people to remember a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we, we're not very much wired to remember a lot of information. And the last two is that uh, the, the most dov- dominant sense which is effectively the channel through which we experience these messages, is by far the visual sense. Um, And therefore, I I recommend, and we explain in the book, that there's no better way to persuade but doing it 100% visually. And that doesn't mean you can't add text or you can't add, you know, even sound, but, but your message needs to make sense only visually first. Uh, and we have all the evidence to show the, the dominance of the visual sense altogether. And finally, emotions. Emotions are necessary. In other words, to convince, to persuade, you need to trigger an emotional cocktail. You need to either make people laugh or scare them. But, but if we don't have these chemicals, these neurochemicals uh, synced to your message, the message is not going to be remembered and the message is not going to trigger a decision. So based on your research, the key takeaways for the most effective messages center around personalizing the message, not introducing too many complex ideas, visuals should be dominant, and emotions should be stimulated. Yeah, and, and you know, so many books have covered one way or another many of these principles, but, but they, they, they have not, I think, uh, to the extent that, that we have, gathered the right evidence particularly coming from the brain. In, in other words, a lot of books exist on, you know, the power of emotions, uh, but they have not been uh, built or supported by experiments where these emotions have been measured mm-hmm. clinically. So there is this definitely trend, which uh, I think you'll find your, your, um, your investigation will, will, Uh, encounter and there's a trend of growing interest for not eliminating the traditional ways to measure not completely eliminating conversations and investigations by talking to people and so on but by adding the benefit of neurobiological or neurophysiological data that comes directly from the brain Good information to keep in mind, uh, whether you're looking at it from a marketing perspective or a media literacy perspective. I'd like to thank Christoph Morin for taking the time to talk about neuroscience and behavior, and I hope you will check the episode description for more resources on this topic. As always, you can find more episodes of Persuasion and the Public Mind at anchor.fm forward slash persuasion. Thanks for listening. See you soon.